0: I'm Jim Simovan, and welcome to episode 10 of TTS Talks. We are very happy to be back talking again with author and scholar Peter Lavenda about the Secret Machines trilogy and the ideas and beliefs that prompted Tom and Peter to write this nonfiction trilogy. And we do hope you will all find this discussion both enlightening and illuminating. For those of you not familiar uh, with TTS Talks, it is a podcast where we take a deep dive into the complexities of our mission here at To The Stars by bringing you one-on-one conversations with the various people who are helping us achieve our goals and give life to our projects here at To The Stars. And I'm Jim Semivan, co-founder of TTS and the vice president of operations, as many of you already know. I was a career officer at at the Central Intelligence Agency for 25 years, and I have been a consultant for CIA and the IC since my retirement in in 2007. I've had a strong interest in and have been a student of what we call the phenomenon for over 45 years. And today, I'm very pleased to announce that Peter LaVenda will join me again for part two of what will be our three-part series discussing secret machines, gods, man, and war our trilogy of nonfiction books with Peter, which Peter co-authored with Tom DeLong. Now, Peter is a well-known author and historian who is highly regarded for his extensive research and knowledge of occultism and occult history. He has an MA in both religious studies and Asian studies from Florida International University and speaks a variety of languages, as I said before, most of them dead. He's penned many unpublished work. He's penned, penned many published works on esoteric subjects and is best known for his book, Unholy Alliance, A History of Nazi Involvement with the Occult, and the trilogy, Sinister Forces, a grimoire of American political witchcraft. Sinister Forces, by the way, is, and I've said this before, is an absolutely excellent and compelling trilogy on what Peter aptly refers to as uh, American political witchcraft. So uh, Peter has also appeared on numerous television programs, on the History and Discovery channels, and is considered an expert on Nazi Germany, especially on the extreme religious and esoteric ideas that formed the Nazi worldview. Peter, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks again for, for taking the time out and, and uh, having this this interview. I put together some some questions here for you, and um, I, I'll maybe have one or two curveballs in them, but we'll see. But today, Peter will be discussing the second book of the Secret Machines uh, uh, nonfiction trilogy, man in his first book gods which we talked about last week uh peter you delve deeply into the ancient cultural evidence for contact with non-human entities discussing the religious and spiritual texts concerned with beings from the heavens along with our human relationship with these beings now in the second book uh you state that you will take uh, the implications of the ufo where science is concerned and that your goal is to take a multidisciplinary disciplinary approach to the phenomenon. So I guess my first question um, really is to ask you, why do you think we need to take this type of approach, this multidisciplinary approach, instead of, say, letting science uh, alone just handle the question uh, involving the phenomenon?
1: Well, thanks for the introduction again, uh, Jim. Thanks for having me back. Um, well, there's there's a couple of parts to that question. Um, why do we need something that's not just a purely scientific approach to the phenomenon? In the first place, there's a lot of different kinds of science out there. um, And they're not necessarily better integrated now than they were 20, 30 years ago. So you have people who specialize in little boxes. So you have the physicists, you have the chemists, you have the biologists, you have geneticists, et cetera, et cetera. And even within those disciplines, they get bifurcated even more. So you have neurobiologists and neuroscientists over here, and you have um, different types of biologists over there, and you have different types of physicists over here. You have people who specialize in Newtonian physics and people who specialize in in quantum mechanics, et cetera, et cetera. So even within science, it's not multidisciplinary yet when it comes to an approach to the phenomenon. But then we have a, a bigger problem ahead of us, and it's one we've been struggling with I think, at least for the last 70 years uh, that I can account for in my life, but probably much longer. And that is the, the cultural aspect of it. I mean, it's, it's not enough for the scientists to say, well, we've, we, we kind of understand the propulsion you know, uh, uh, aspect of the phenomenon. We kind of understand how a UAP flies around or seems to fly around space. That's, that's not going to help most of us. Um, who are going to want to know what the cultural impact of this is going to be. I mean, the religions are struggling with this. The idea there might be alien contact. Everybody has their own point of view on this. And and we discussed last time the fact that even within the military industrial complex, there's a lot of, of religious concern over the meaning of an alien intelligence and contact with an alien intelligence. Are we talking about demonic forces, you know, powers from the sky? Is it? As it says in the Bible, or what are we really, you know, discussing then? So we need to address those things, and that's not going to be addressed purely by science. That's not going to help us. We need also, you know, anthropologists to be involved. We need uh, we need people like me, people who have a religious studies background, involved. Um, We need different. We need artists. We need musicians. We need people who have something to bring to the table, because as I've said, I think in in Secret Machines, man. you know, do aliens sing? Right. Right. We don't really know that, you know, maybe there's a reason why maybe a musician can help us understand that better than a scientist at the moment. Right. And also the problem with science is we don't understand science anyway, not anymore. Right. Right. We need so much math to understand science and the, the scientists are not that comfortable talking about what they know with us because it's this highly specialized language. So all of these reasons are why we need a multidisciplinary approach.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you think the Vatican has gotten a head start on this, by the way? I, 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 my understanding is that years ago, they, they decided they were going to look into this topic uh, a little bit more closely.
1: Sure. I think they're more prepared than we are aware uh, for uh, an, um, an event where we, are ha- we have made contact with some kind of an alien or off planet or ultra terrestrial force. I think they're kind of comfortable with that. And they can handle it within uh, the religious, um, the, the specifically Roman Catholic dogmatic framework. I think they're coming up with ways to explain it, handle it, and uh, to satisfy the, the fears, perhaps, and the, the, the apprehensions of, of Catholics. And that may go somewhat towards you know, spreading out and having an effect upon other religions, particularly Christianity. Right. I think Islam, for instance, is not too bothered by it. Uh, the Quran talks about beings in other places, and you know Allah is all, all merciful, all powerful. And why wouldn't there be beings you know, in other planets? I think there's a long tradition of Islamic um, thought in this area as well, in terms of astronomy and astrology, etc. So they're a bit more comfortable with it. Other religions, I don't know. Buddhism should be comfortable with it. Yeah, uh, to a Buddhist, it's all illusion anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you know, early on in, in man, and um, uh, you take uh, note that alien technology appears far more advanced than our own. Uh, and uh, you then pose the question if the UFO phenomenon represents a technology more advanced than our own, then by how much? And mm-hmm. I, I'd like you to sort of explain that a little bit, what you meant by that.
1: Well, if we looked at the alien technology from the perspective of somebody in the late 19th century, Mm-hmm. Um their experience was of the flying ship phenomenon, right? So right. there were these airships that were floating around. And we kind of tried to understand them and we 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 depicted them as being big boats that flew in the air with people on them. And there were large searchlights, and we had this whole this whole thing worked out. And it went from coast to coast and across the ocean into Europe. So the airship, you know, thing went on. And we just sat back and wondered at it. Well, it's a 100 year more than 100 years later, and we've sent people to the moon and we have probes going out beyond Pluto. So suddenly um, our technology has outpaced ourselves, our, outpaced our culture by so much that at this point we have to ask ourselves, how advanced is the alien technology compared to what we can do? Really, how far is it? If you had asked somebody 100 years ago, they would say light years ahead of us. You ask people today, and we're already in space, we're already flying around, we're already doing remarkable things with with computers and with uh, types of science that we didn't even know existed even 50 years ago. So how far advanced is, is the, the typical UFO from what we're doing and from what we're going to be in another 10 or 20 years? Yeah. If the alien is a kind of androgyne or a kind of robot, a kind of cyborg or something, we're already far along in that area as well. Uh, we've developed robots and we're do- constantly developing robots That we're constantly talking about uh, uh, artificially um, uh, amplified human beings in some ways, right? The cyborg concept, androids, this sort of thing. We're, we're doing all of that. So we're getting closer and closer and closer to this idea, may not be the reality, but this idea that we have of the UFO phenomenon. We're duplicating a lot of that in our own science and technology. So how far, what is the distance? And is the distance still light years away? Are we being fooled into thinking that we're approaching their science when we're really not? We're just amplifying our own.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting take. So uh, am I picking up hints of optimism here that that we may be close to understanding this this phenomenon on Earth?
1: I think we're closer now than we've been before. I think our problem is we are struggling with one very big basic concept, and I have a feeling we're going to get into it, and that is the relationship of consciousness to reality and consciousness to science. What is the interface there? And I think that that's that's our major stumbling block right now. We kind of still keep those things in separate boxes, and that's probably a mistake.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we are definitely going to get to that. And uh, I hope you don't mind if this uh, conversation is slightly disjointed. There are so many things I want to talk to you about, and I want to make sure I get get them all in. Um, But uh, throughout your book, uh, you you started talking about abductions for the first time uh, and a little bit more detail. And regarding abductions, you said that all those nightmarish experiences by alien abductees may be due to machines inspecting what they believe to be other machines, us. Care to talk about that a little bit? No. Okay. Yeah. I, don't, I don't blame you, right? <laughs> After my nightmarish experience,
1: yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, well, it's like this. It goes into a deep, uh, we went into this deeply in, in the second volume, really. We went to chapters and trying to figure out what the alien is from the point of view of anthropology or from the point of view of the observations of people who claim they've seen aliens, yeah. uh, alien beings. And they look machine-like. They, they, they do not seem to perspire. They do not seem to have any flatulence <laughs> to be brought. They don't eat anything. They don't drink anything. Maybe they are machines. And if they are machines, maybe all that the machine understands is another machine. Maybe we're kind of uh, a mystery to the machine. The machine is tr- attempting to understand what kind of machine we are. We would try to understand them in terms of humans in terms of anthropology, we would look at these things and think they're living beings, right? But maybe they're not, maybe they're machines. And maybe they're looking at us thinking that we're machines and we're not. So the idea is they're, they're, they're experimenting on us because they're trying to take apart the machine and figure out how it works. And some of these hideous uh, experiences people have had, John Mack has written about them. You know, the, the PTSD that, that alien abductees have experienced is due to being probed, being manipulated being controlled by a machine thinking that this is a machine they're dealing with. So what's the harm? What's the damage, right?
0: Right.
1: So it, it may be something like that. And I think that a machine might be more capable of evaluating another machine in terms of a threat potential. If a machine has no experience of a human being, God help us both. Because they're assuming a logical framework that may not exist. We're not the most logical of creatures uh, in the world. We're creating logical creatures and we're having a hard time with them. We're creating computers and robots and all kinds of of digitally enhanced uh, structures all over the world. These are logical and we're basically at heart not that logical. We're forcing ourselves to understand this and to, to protect ourselves from it, from artificial intelligence, for instance. Mm-hmm. What if a machine is 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 contemplating us the same way? They're trying to understand us from a threat perspective. Are we a threat to them somehow? Uh and in what way? What makes us a threat? How do how do they dissect us and fix us if they think that we're malfunctioning? All of these things might be happening. We just don't know because we don't know if the alien is a machine. And you know, the big question, who created that machine?
0: Yeah. Can you talk about the alien abduction ritual uh, uh, in his in a historical sense? Because you you did uh, delve into that a, a lot in the book, and have we seen? Excuse me, evidence of the same scenario in historical records, and how far does this go back? I'm thinking uh, about the mind control experiments we have all heard about, say in MK Ultra, these other other things.
1: Well, Jim. Uh... Why don't we have that uh, discussion?
0: No, no, no. I, that was way before my time. I know, I know, yes, yeah. Shame on them for doing that, I might add. I'm not a big fan of that. But.
1: It was inevitable. It would come up. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, it's like this. Um, yeah, well, there's two big, heavy questions you have out there. The historical, the ancient historical uh, precedents for it, and then the more the more recent ones.
0: Yeah, J- Jock, Jock talks a lot about this, right? In Passport to Magonia, and then you get, sure. uh, you know, even uh, – uh, I think Tom Bullard in his book "The uh, UFOs and, uh, and Modern UFOs uh, and the Myth and Mystery of UFOs." Yes,
1: I mean the, the the idea that humans are abducted or taken to someplace else by mysterious creatures is, is very ancient. It's all over the world, and every culture has its word for that particular creature that does that. In some cases, uh, in ancient in the ancient Middle East, there was uh, the lilitu, you know, from which we get the term the, the word Lilith. Uh, Supposedly, Adam's first wife, by the way, according to some uh, Jewish traditions. And this Lilith steals babies, right? Will steal an infant, will steal a child. Um, the idea of a child stealing spirit is is common throughout the world. It may have to do with anxiety about childbirth and, and uh, child fatality, for instance, things like that. But then there's also the things that I grew up with uh, when I was a kid talking about, you know, there are people out there who will steal children, who will steal you if you're not careful. Um, in those days where I was living and the kind of things that I heard from my parents, we had to be aware of gypsies, right? The yeah, gypsies right. would come and steal the children, right? Yeah. Of course, it was nonsense, but this is something that was, that was around. Um, other kinds of motifs like that. There's this idea that there are beings that do this. More um, complicated issues then come to the incubi-succubi, these beings that come in the middle of the night. Uh, they steal semen from the male and they impregnate women um, to give birth to horrible creatures or, or something. There's the witches' sabbath, where witches basically will steal people and take them to a sabbath on top of a mountain somewhere and perform hideous sacrifices. The whole, the whole uh, satanic panic of the 80s was based on this very old medieval concept that uh, witches are being stolen. Um, the Salem witchcraft trials talked about a, a man in black, by the way. Uh, who would show up and then it, tell people, okay, the Sabbath is taking place. All the witches had to go and meet there. And then people would disappear. People would uh, have these horrible experiences and then recount them uh, in during the trials. So you have this thing that goes on where people imagine or they're recounting an actual experience. They have no other way to describe that experience except to say it was the witch or it was a devil or a demon or some spiritual force took me and quite often there's a sexual component to it as well, um, and then they're brought back again. And people have tried to claim it's a it's a form of a sleep disorder, right, that you're having a sleep disorder. You feel you're being captured and you can't move, and it's really just, uh, it's, don't worry about it, nothing to see here. It's a neurological condition. For people who've had both, they know there's a tremendous difference between the kind of sleep disorder that uh, psychiatrists are talking about and the alien abduction experience, which was much more detailed and much more involved right. than that. So a lot more work has to be done. And psychiatrists, by the way, as part of this multidisciplinary approach, they have to be more open to it uh, in the way that John Mack was. You know, We need that kind of openness, listening to people and trying to figure out what the common denominators are. But when you go to MKUltra, the, the, the fascinating part about this and the, the relevance it has to the UFO phenomenon as, as we will see, is that there was this concerted effort to try to unpack consciousness, the black box, you know, try to figure out what's going on in there. As, as misguided and as hideous in some cases as it was, I can kind of understand the desire to do this because there was fear that maybe another government was doing that, that another another government understood consciousness better than we did. And the the excesses that were taken were taken because people didn't know they didn't understand what they were dealing with i think my my approach to it in sinister forces was to look at it as a kind of shamanic thing you know it was it was a magical occult operation basically but without any of the safeguards the people were not willing participants. They were unwilling. Imagine you're being initiated into a secret society unwillingly, right? Yeah, so right. after you're taken off the street and you're given all these you know, behavior modification things and rituals are happening and there's hypnosis and drugs and all the rest of it, and you have no clue what's going on. Yeah, that's wrong, okay? Yeah. But the, the, the systems and the methods were kind of similar, but they got really more drastic. And one I want to talk about is uh, Dr. Ewan Cameron in Montreal. Uh, the de-patterning processes that he did. He wanted to wipe people's memories completely and then replace them with other memories. Um, This was like the the Holy Grail. Can we completely erase a person's personality, you know, and give them other memories, other thoughts, and make them think other things have happened? Um, From a strategic point of view, of course, it seems very valuable. But from the point of view of human psychology, And our relationship to the alien, our relationship to um, contact with a non-human or a non-terrestrial agency, what are the implications of that? When we experience the UFO, when we see one in the sky, or when we have the alien abduction experience, for instance, is this an instance of memories being wiped and replaced? Is this an instance of a false memory being implanted by something else to make us think we saw what we saw? Is it a screen memory? I had this discussion with Whitley Strieber uh, over years, back in the 90s. You know, were experiences of alien abduction screen memories for something much more hideous that was taking place? Were these Nazi experiments, for instance, on on unwitting subjects? Were these MKUltra-type experiences? Or was the alien itself responsible for implanting memories? Since we don't understand our consciousness yet, not really, we can't answer these questions and that's a problem are you saying or do you believe
0: that uh, these ideas of abduction uh, did you find them you know in all the different cultures they're obviously all there but did you did you do you see this as polycentric or did you see this as starting someplace and then going out you know and moving out someplace monocentric you know it has started here and then it sort of drifted you know uh, through civilization do you think that each individual a civilization that existed always had these same things.
1: Oh, I think it's polycentric. I think that the interpretation of it, however, is influenced by other civilizations, right? So right. you have this kind of syncretism going on between different cultures, especially the spiritual specialists in those cultures, trying to understand their experience by trying to understand another culture's experience, right? right? So you have that going on. And I think that you know, we're talking about occultism in, in the 20th, 20th and 21st century. It's syncretic that way in that they're, they're comparing notes uh, from different cultures. Um, I remember I had a, uh, a professor, uh, a Jewish studies professor, who was part of a delegation that went to see the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama wanted information from the Jewish rabbis. How do you keep your culture intact during diaspora since the Tibetans facing the same thing? but there was a side conversation going on and that was between the jewish mystics and the tibetan mystics and they were comparing notes you know oh do you do it this way do you do it that way how does this happen what is your experience about that that's still going on and these people now they've already contaminated each other from this point of view you know so now they're going to start using terms and ideas and concepts in their own culture that they got from another one you saw that happening like in situ you know right there sort of in a laboratory context so I think that the experience, the, the core experience, is polycentric. It, it arrives everywhere across the globe. The interpretation of it, though, is we're influencing each other in our interpretations. And this is what science complains about. They say, well, you know, you didn't really see a flying saucer because you saw a flying saucer in a movie, you know, 10 years ago. And now you're projecting that onto this experience and it really wasn't there. So they're they're missing the point. The point is, is that we are struggling to put a word and an image on, on an experience that we had. And the UFO seems to work that way. The flying saucer seemed to work.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting because, you know, but I, I, I always sort of, I, I found funny when people say that when scientists point out that, Oh, you're just projecting, you're seeing a saucer right. because you watch flash Gordon. Right. Well, why is it just saucers that people are talking about? Why isn't it, you know, dinosaurs flying upside down, exactly. you know, with uh, with uh, you know, uh, Christmas tree lights hanging on them? I mean, it, there could be a million different variations, but there aren't. They're no. just flying saucers. So, well, let's and jump I mean, to something. Well, go ahead.
1: go ahead. I said I've never seen Emperor Ming, you know. So I mean, I don't Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now you know. Let's let's jump to something a little bit more basic here. You stated also in the book. Uh, Very early on in the book that a cardinal mistake uh, and a source of great confusion has been the most, has been the almost universal substitution of the UFO phenomenon for the phenomenon itself.
1: What do you mean by that? Well, that's actually a quotation from Alan Hynek. Okay. And what Hynek said was, the mistake is the almost universal substitution of an interpretation of the UFO phenomenon for the phenomenon itself it's the interpretation that's the mistake right yeah which is what we just talked about we're, we're going to make an interpretation of it and we're going to use that interpretation and say that everybody's crazy because there are no little green men on Mars you know so since there's no little green men on Mars the entire UFO you know phenomenon is a hoax and it's not real and you're you're delusional so when you when you put when you come up with an interpretation and you make that the interpretation you've screwed up Right. Because right now we're not really at that stage yet. We don't have a the interpretation. But when a scientist or, or people like that point at, you know, a prevailing cultural meme or a trope about UFOs and say, well, that's wrong. Therefore, there are no UFOs. That's not scientific method. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's just that's just politics. Right. That's just an excuse to to denigrate you know, the whole field and say we don't have to look at this. So that's what I, I meant by that. We are substituting and the UFO community is is guilty of this as well, you know, when they shouldn't be. But this is what they've done. You have people promoting their interpretation as the interpretation. UFOs are benevolent. They're angelic. They want our best. We have our best intentions at heart. UFOs are demonic. They're trying to destroy us. Um, and variations of all of that. You know, there are hundreds of different races and there's this one and that one and the other one. And they're doing this and they're doing that. So once you come up with these interpretations, people listen to it and they say, well, that doesn't sound right. So they dismiss the entire field. You've got to keep an open mind, especially those who think they know the truth or think they have a handle on it. They cannot, you know, if they keep promoting it this way, they're just going to add to the confusion. So substituting an interpretation is always going to be wrong until we've got a lot more information to work with. It's like a a police officer, a a police detective determining in advance who the perp is, you know, in, in, in a murder case without looking at the rest of the evidence and more evidence comes up that says that perp isn't the perp and you dismiss it because you like this guy for it you know uh, that's a trope on on tv law and order episodes constantly so this is a mistake that ufologists quite often make they they mistake you know an interpretation for the evidence
0: yeah, it seems like we're always in a quest for order. We, I think it's like we want an orderly universe, mm-hmm. and and we want to explain things all the time. When really, yeah. I mean, even Einstein, when he when he couldn't explain entanglement, you know, he said God doesn't play you know dice with the universe.
1: Right.
0: Well, because he didn't like that idea. He really did like you know an orderly uh, an orderly universe. So, uh, throughout the book, you also talk about uh, the nature of our collective reality. And um, can you talk a bit about? Reality being a fluid concept before the advent of the scientific revolution, I thought that was fascinating, and we saw things much differently back in early history. Uh, Is that correct? I mean, I you know I never sort of heard of that before until you brought it up.
1: Well, Thomas Kuhn writes about scientific revolutions, right? His famous book, and uh, so you have you know throughout history, scientific revolution, quote unquote, which changes everything. But the the difficulty with it is. We mentioned before that, you know, science has become so bifurcated that people don't know what it is anymore. And, you know, one scientist in one area may know nothing about a scientist in another area. But back before the scientific revolutions, the big ones of the 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, um, a scientist was an observer of nature, and it was an observation that was integrated with spiritual and philosophical ideas as well it was all integrated together you couldn't have science sitting alone separately from what you went through in the course of normal life when you had geniuses like uh, da vinci for instance inventing machinery and painting paintings and pictures and you know doing statues and sculpting and doing all of this involved politically involved militarily involved in the arts involved in all of this he was integrating all of these things into one you know grand concept but we don't talk about da vinci as Uh, as a scientific theorist, really. He was reacting to what was around at the time and integrating it as much as possible, the idea of the Renaissance man. We don't have a Renaissance man or woman right now because it's impossible to integrate all of this, right? Now, reality, what a concept, as Robin Williams used to say, uh, reality is a, a construction. We're kind of at the point now where we understand that. What we see as reality is a construction of our senses, Scientists have understood that there are colors that we cannot see. There's light on the spectrum that we don't visually see because we don't need to. It wasn't necessary for survival. There's sounds we don't hear. Dogs can hear them famously, but we can't hear them. There are smells we can't smell. Again, dogs have a great olfactory sense. All of this is out there. It's part of reality, but it's not part of our reality. And once you say our reality, well, then all bets are off, right? Right what's the, what's reality to an alien right they're going to see something perhaps much more differently than we are where we constantly anthropomorphize this problem to the point where it loses its its relevance and its meaning and we think we understand it so um we use math for instance as the major determinant of science and as i as we said before we don't understand math anymore you know it's not simple arithmetic, certainly it 's not even simple algebra it 's not even calculus we 're in a different world with with where mathematics is that we the kind of math we need for science and it's become almost a kind of kabbalah right it's almost a, yeah. a, a secret jargon that only the math specialists know. Um, quantum mechanics is based a lot of that string theory is impossible to understand without all kinds of of of, of very advanced mathematical concepts. Uh, that sounds like uh, incantations to us because we have no no box to put it in it doesn't matter if we 've gone to college it doesn't matter if we have you know if we 've studied calculus, we still don 't know what they're talking about. So science itself as a determinant of reality is problematic. My world day to day uses things developed by science. I like to think I think in scientific terms a lot the scientific method test things to prove if they're right or wrong. Uh, is a repeatable et cetera etc cetera. but I know there's experiences that I've had and experiences that most people have had that are not repeatable right that don't right. really adhere to the scientific method that if you talk about them scientists shrug their shoulders and say well that's a subjective experience it's anecdotal whatever yeah maybe but to me it's my reality right and to me it's a core part of my reality experiences that I had when I was a teenager or in my 20s etc or in my 60s. <sighs> <laughs> anyway those kinds of experiences they commute they accumulate and they're part of your reality and there's no scientific you know reasoning for that and if we can understand this and we understand that the scientific view of reality is becoming narrower and narrower when it should be becoming broader and broader to incom- incorporate the alien experience to accom- accommodate the ufo phenomenon uh we're going to be kind of stuck in the mud a little bit which is why as i said we need multidisciplinary approach to this we need Scientists, absolutely. But we also need the non-scientists because they're bringing a different version, a different vision of reality to the table.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I I remember, uh, you know, uh, when when psychology first, uh, you know, hit with William James uh, uh, many years ago, around turn of the century, uh, a lot of uh, doctors, uh, you know, medical doctors didn't like it because it was claiming to be a science, Right. And they were not comfortable at all because it was dealing in subject, area, subject areas which weren't quite repeatable and what have you and, and testable uh, in and of themselves. And so I think uh, a lot of scientists don't want to share. Right. They don't Jim. like they like to hold on to that that name. Like we're the only true scientist. Right. right. We get that on the Big Bang Theory with Sheldon always right. making fun of engineers. Right. So.
1: Right.
0: Well, let's let's jump to something else. Um, <laughs> would you consider the the, the quote unquote alien uh, a liminal figure that we create in order to get our minds around the fact that a phenomenon exists for which there is no other rational explanation. Okay. Have we anthropomorphized, uh, anthropomorphized, yeah, excuse me, the uh, phenomenon this way, superimposing a quasi-human face on the mysterious, the quote-unquote secret machine? This is, uh, this is I, I'm sorry, but I was quoting you there. Uh, and we just talked about that a little bit, but can mm-hmm. you, can you, uh, when you say a liminal figure? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, liminal figure of course comes from, from anthropology and from, right. you know, again, from religious studies. Um, the idea that there is a, a space between this world and the next or between this culture and another culture. And in that, that in that borderline, that, that liminence, that, uh, that, that, that gate between the two worlds, you have figures that go in and out um, who have experiences and they bring these experiences back to, to the rest of us, the alien may be a stand-in for that figure, someone who stands between this world and the next. And we do anthropomorphize it to, to a certain extent. I think, I think, again, we go back to the idea of the UFO itself. This is why the machine and the alien is kind of inextricable here. We can't really separate them as neatly as we would like. And I think the reason is when we see a machine flying through the air or seeming to fly through the air, we make a lot of assumptions immediately because we've made machines that fly through the air. And in those machines, there are pilots or there are passengers or they are piloted by something like a drone, for instance, a drone operator. There's always a human figure behind it. So with that in our mind, we look at a UFO and we think there must be a figure behind it. We anthropomorphize the alien as if it's a being at the controls, flying a machine. This could be absolutely true. But in some cases, maybe not. Maybe some of the things that we see are not being flown by anyone. You know, so we're making assumptions. And these assumptions are being made based on our own personal experience of science. A hundred years ago, 150 years ago, with the great airship thing, we anthropomorphize that thing to death, right? Right. These were were ships with sails, for crying out loud. And they had ants, right? But there was one telltale fact, one one detail that was there, that is still there, and that is the searchlight. For some reason, these people in the 1890s saw these ships with a massive searchlight underneath it, scouring the earth that would go on and off the searchlight. Which is the same as what we're seeing today with people who've had these contacts. They see the, the, the ship come by with lights underneath it. They had there are searchlights. In some cases, very bright lights, and they turn on, and they turn off. We've seen this trope in science fiction movies, even. So we know this is something that we had experienced. People saw ships because that's all they understood. They didn't see an airplane because they've never seen an airplane. They didn't have we didn't have them yet. Until the Wright brothers, after the great airship experiences, we saw balloons, right? But these ships were not balloons. Oddly enough, they were not like the Montgolfier balloons. We did not. That's right. Yeah. We didn't see balloons. We saw ships. We saw piloted craft, and that's the important thing. What we did is we changed it. We changed these these images, or we didn't. They did, or some communication, some combination of what they were transmitting and what we received resulted in this in this image of a flying ship with a searchlight yeah. um so yeah we do anthropomorphize a lot i think the alien is is somewhat anthropomorphized um it may be that they don't have a head two arms and two legs but then the problem is how come we don't go all the way and anthropomorphize it how come these beings don't have hair how come they don't have genitals to be f- quite frank uh mm-hmm. sorry children how come we don't they don't have um you know uh other orifices. They don't eat, they don't drink, they don't sleep. We don't anthropomorphize them 100%. We're meeting them halfway. So there's a machine-like aspect to these things. And we're trying to fit this into some kind of a of a medium we can feel comfortable with, an object that we can understand, two arms, two legs, uh, a, a head, you know, large eyes, all the rest of it. And yet we don't go 100%. They don't talk to us. They communicate mentally to us. They put images in our brain and that putting images in our brain should be the clue Yeah. that what we're seeing is an image created by someone or something else. The airships, possibly the UFOs, the Tic Tacs. Well, Tic Tacs are on, are on video, but are they, you know what I mean? Is there a way of putting an image onto our videos that we don't understand yet? When something is not there. These are all questions we have to, to ask. We don't have to answer them right away. But we do have to ask them or else we're, we're, we're just, you know, whistling in the dark.
0: Yeah. Well, interesting too about the 1897 airship mystery. Uh, remember, I uh, reading, I mean, the, 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 when they did come down off the ship and they would ask for water, right. you know, you kind of use your well, but they were all pretty much humans. They sometimes are dressed in like little outfits and uniforms that looked uh, like much like the uniforms of the day. A lot of them had beards yep. uh, and they would climb up a rope, you know, sometimes 100, 200 feet up. I don't know how many people can do that, uh, but it was fascinating how that works. You know, I was uh, rereading uh, John Keel. Every, every few years, I, I like to go through him because I think I find him absolutely fascinating. Absolutely.
1: And,
0: yeah. And uh, I know uh, you and Keel share a lot um, about about this phenomenon. But he talked about the reflective nature of the phenomenon. And, you know, in Chapter 3 of Man, you stated that it's possible that we have been projecting our own image, onto the phenomenon since time immemorial, that may be the key to understanding it. What do you mean by projecting our own image? And is that a a Jungian interpretation of the phenomenon?
1: Hmm. Well, Jung, of course, just said, you know, the flying saucer represented a a mandala, right? It was an attempt by society to integrate themselves and become self-individuated, et cetera. So uh, he went all all out on that one. Um, I like another term that he created which has obsessed me for a long time he referred to the ufo or the ufos in general as technological angels and that term resonated with me because it it combines two completely what we would consider completely opposite ideas right technology and angels and these are technological angels they're coming from the sky They're they may be benevolent we don't know but they're also technology they're machines They're machines and they're angels, you know, and the the critique of angels against technology and technology against angels is what I think is really interesting. So um, if we're projecting our image onto the idea of the angel, which is entirely possible given, you know, human history and the ways we've depicted angels as human beings with wings, right, human beings that fly or angels that are simply messengers that just show up and do something to us and then disappear again. We may have been projecting our our image onto these beings since time immemorial. Uh, if we talk about, uh, I, I study ancient Jewish mysticism a lot, uh, Merkava mysticism, Hechalot, and all kinds of other you know, variations of that. And the idea that there are angelic beings that just simply show up uh, and they may have names, we call them by a certain way, and there's technologies for talking to them or reaching them, but they show up and they disappear. They they, they show up through the Bible, they show up through uh, various other uh, works, and they share so much in common with the what we think of as the alien that it's not funny, right? Um, even to the point, and I don't want to be blasphemous here, well, I do, kind of. No, I don't, right ahead. I don't right want to ahead. be blessed. But right. if we think about, if we think about Christianity, we think about the 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 origin story of Jesus, um, there is, you know, Mary who's pregnant by some unknown force, right? And she gives birth to a baby who becomes Jesus. Um, there, there's elements of the alien abduction myth right in there. And then yeah. there's Elizabeth who gets pregnant, and she's very old, and she gets pregnant miraculously. And we talk about things, these things as miracles. We're at the point now where science can duplicate a lot of this, we know. But were these all, you know, were these ways of dealing with, with an idea that um, was anthropomorphizing our relationship to the alien, the alien being a kind of human, as it says, the sons of God and the daughters of men? How was that possible in Genesis that an alien being could cohabit with human women and give, a, give birth to the race of the Nephilim, to the, to the race of the giants, right? Genetically speaking, that should not be possible, right? It's two different species. But maybe then, according to Genesis, they're not two different species. They're just different, slightly different, but they still share the same kind of DNA. They're still capable of producing offspring. And there was this this, unconscious idea in Genesis that this happened. And when it happened, Noah got, you know, everybody freaked out and there was the flood, right? And then God tried to destroy the world. Oh, no, you can't have that, right? So there's this idea that there are beings from space who come down and cohabit with with human people, humans. Um so we pull that thread a little bit. And what does that mean? Is the alien human? Does the alien have enough human characteristics that this kind of relationship is possible? Or are we just making this up? <laughs> that's, where, uh, yeah, that's, that's where we get...
0: that's where we are. I
1: think that's right? where we are. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the yeah, you know, we, uh, someday we we'll be ought to get a, a, a conversation about you know the whole idea of the virgin birth and how far back it goes and and uh, oh yeah you know oh, the, the magi is maybe being the men in black showing up and uh, you know
1: well that's good that's uh, good for an hour right there
0: I would say so yeah. now uh, well sticking with biblical things a little bit you stated that the warnings of global catastrophe catastrophes have been a staple of divine prophecy since the earliest biblical writings in the west. Kind of percolated into the popular culture. Why do the aliens always warn of environmental catastrophes? Because, really, I mean, it's got to be. I mean, wouldn't you think that they would be saying something instead like, hey, uh, this is who we are, uh, and uh, this is where we come from, and this is what reality is all like, and you know, sort of set the stage a little bit and then say, you know, and now that you have that basic picture, let me tell you what you're doing wrong. And, mm-hmm. But they just just seem to jump right in. Yep. It's like they're living here with us, right? Right next to us. And they're really, we're screwing something up for them and they don't like it. Right. But they don't want to tell us anything else.
1: Well, you pretty much answered the question. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, uh, my, my reaction is because they live here. Maybe that's why. But but it's it's not only that though. You know, you go back to the Bible, to the earliest you know prophecies, they're all about doom and destruction. There was never a prophet who showed up and said, hey, guys, you're doing great. (laughs) (laughs) We never had that. Or a a prophet who comes by and says, well, you're screwing up here and here. But if you do this, everything will be fine. Never happens this way. They just show up and say, you're all going to die. That's it. You screwed up. You're evil. Uh, You can't save anything. Sodom, Gomorrah, goodbye. Nuclear blast. Holocaust, it's over. So we never get somebody coming up and saying, you know, you're doing a good job. And the aliens are no different. And that's what bothers me about this, right? The aliens are fulfilling that biblical prophecy meme, you know, by showing up and saying you're all going to die. You know, the universe is being destroyed. You know, it's all your fault. Um, so, I this this may be part of our anthropomorphization process. Is that a word? Where we yeah. are trying to humanize this this entity by making the entity fit into this mold, you know, of of this uh, of this divine judgment upon us, which is what, you know, there was a lot of talk about this or or, or references to this even at at DOD, right? Right. I mean, they're, you know, we're we're dealing with demons and angels and we don't know. This is unchristian. We can't deal with UFOs because, you know, this is, God doesn't want us to.
0: Collins elite.
1: Yes. Collins elite. So we're back into that Mode, you know, we're, we have to extricate this stuff from each other, because we're not learning anything this way. We're just, you know, promoting and anthropomorphizing and projecting our fears and our insecurities onto this this experience, and it's it's a mirror, and we're looking into it, and it's not a it's not a good look. You know, we yeah. we have to do something about that. And I think that we're getting this. Maybe it's not a prediction of actual catastrophe, although climate change looks like it's heading that way but it's not necessarily a prediction of an actual catastrophe but it's it's a um, it's picking up our own anxieties about what we're doing and reflecting it back to us as if to say to us well then do something about it if you're that worried about x y or z fix it right but with well, that, that sounds I mean,
0: Jungian,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah, that sounds Jungian, or it sounds yeah. kind of Star Trek also, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: we can't get involved in the other planet. You know, we cannot uh, you know, unfairly right. move or you know, do anything, manipulate the situation. All we can do is watch and move on. So maybe that's happening. I mean, I don't know. But the, the, this thing does bother me, that the idea that they just show up to 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 bitch at us and then leave. Yeah, yeah.
0: Never never anything nice. No. Uh, You stated that we observe phenomena that have no scientific explanation and then discard the observations because they don't fit the theory, rather than retooling the theory to fit the observations. Does science need to expand its boundaries to accept the phenomenon? Do we need what James, William James, called a radical empiricism?
1: Oh, yeah, Definitely. I mean, I think it's starting to happen. We have some scientists who have now opened up about this. They're willing to accept it. We have Avi Loeb as a famous example, but we have others and there's, they are extending, they're expanding their boundaries to to do this. I think it's really necessary because as we said before, reality, what a concept, right? Reality is something that's a social construct right now. We kind of understand it's a social construct. It's a genetic construct in a sense. I mean, it's, it's a survival mechanism. We know we experience only what we need to survive. But at this point, our, our survival um, odds are getting narrower and narrower. I, know, I don't want to sound like an alien making predictions, but just on the basis of you know population and pollution and all the rest of it, wars with nuclear weapons and all of this. So we have to come to a, to a, a different understanding, a different interpretation of what reality is. And we, in order to do that, we have to expand our horizons on that. And, you know, oddly enough, I think expanding our horizons on reality is not only going to include other other paradigms, other ways of looking at reality. It's going to include other people's experience of reality. And I think that's also very important. Science needs to approach, appreciate that as well. They need to expand the the, the barriers a little bit where we incorporate what other people have said or thought about reality, other cultures, because the West right now has this seeming stranglehold uh, on it. And we may be a little suicidal that way because we're not incorporating other visions of reality. We're not incorporating other ideas, other possibilities, other potential, because we're so blinded by our own technological advances. We're going down you know, one particular dark alley And we're not really realizing there's other streets running parallel and perpendicular that we could be walking on that could give us a a greater sense of where we really are and how to solve some of these problems.
0: Well, it's interesting. I I know, you know, Tom Bullard uh, uh, mentions, Mm -hmm. and Jacques Vallée brings this up too, this whole idea of uh, looking and taking the uh, the science to the phenomenon where you do a field-centric study, much like anthropologists will do uh, and people in the field. If you want to study something, you go to the field and you study it and you write, you write the science based on what you see and what was the observable evidence. And and perhaps that might be the way to, you know, sort of uh, push uh, uh, this phenomena research uh, into the phenomena, into the scientific realm. But we'll see, uh, you know, earlier on in the conversation, we, we talked about consciousness and you and, and, and I really want to get into that right now. And um, let me ask you the big question up front. Um, Do you think we will ever get to the bottom of the what is consciousness problem and why it is important that we actually do that?
1: Maybe the question should be phrased differently. Maybe it's not a question of what is consciousness as if consciousness is a solid, measurable thing, right? Maybe we need to explore different modalities of consciousness, different different consciousness types, in order to get a better understanding of what this consciousness thing is right um it, it may we may be looking at it again from a scientific point of view we're trying to nail it down right and right. it's it's notoriously tricky to do that so you have um, some physicists saying that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain that's the famous quotation right that consciousness comes out of the brain um, my personal approach to it and of course I'm not a scientist so who cares but my approach to it is that the brain is an emergent property of consciousness. It's the reverse. Consciousness pre-existed everything. Consciousness was there in some form as information, perhaps. And consciousness is organizing matter around itself. And we're still in that process of being organized since the Big Bang or whenever it was uh, that started this whole thing. So I think that consciousness has always been there. Our consciousness is seems very limited because of a number of factors. We talked about... You know, um, our perception of reality is limited compared to what's actually out there. But it's also, um, how shall I put it? It's, um, we don't think the way scientists solve equations, right. the way we think in the world, the way we we relate to um, reality is really more quantum mechanical than it is newtonian right Um, it's a possible way of looking at it we kind of instinctively understand ideas like entanglement for instance right it's a beautiful thing that two quantum particles once they meet are forever in in contact on opposite sides of the universe if you change the spin on one the other one automatically changes Uh, that's you know that's really anthropomorphizing a scientific principle and scientists will scream that i'm doing that but there's the kind of a way that we operate in the world that's kind of like that. We, we accept synchronicity as part of life. We accept dreams influencing our behavior and our actions. We accept some really crazy stuff out there. You know, there's a lot of crazy things going on politically and everything else where people are just making stuff up and believing in it. And this is, this is happening because we haven't gotten a handle on consciousness. We're, we haven't gotten a handle on reality. You know, we think that reality and information is the same thing, and therefore any information is, is, sorry, is good information. Mm -hmm. So that whatever we think is true is true. And that's taking this way into another direction where it's not going to be very uh, fruitful because science has to correct back and say, yes, what you think is possible, but then you have to actually do it. You know, you've got to have the tools to do it to make it happen. And there's much more that's possible than we're aware of at any given point in time but I think that that ideas of of um, consciousness as something that is developing within the brain is probably in my way of thinking a mistake because that's like saying you know you have a, a a radio and the radio is picking up different stations but if your radio is broken the stations have stopped broadcasting right I think the brain is like a a radio and we are tuned to different frequencies and we are picking up consciousness of different types of different kinds. If we die and the, the brain stops functioning, does that mean that that consciousness has disappeared? That's the, that's the ultimate question, right? That's the $64,000 question. Do we survive in some way? And why is this question relative to the discussion of UFOs? And that's because the UFO researchers now are starting to focus on near-death experiences and life after death, and all of that as being part of this entire experience of the phenomenon. There is some connection to all of this. If consciousness survives the destruction of the radio, the transistor radio—I'm dating myself—and um, you know—and it's still broadcasting out there, then consciousness still exists. Our individual station tuning maybe is not there, but it could be duplicated again, right? You build a sure. radio and you tune back into consciousness again. So I think consciousness is broadcasting and we're just the receivers. And sometimes we're the transceivers, we're the transmitters as well, right? Yeah. We start to study uh, the spiritual disciplines that people talk about and we start to develop the ability to transmit as well as to receive better. And then, you know, the Dalai Lama right now, uh, for instance, is practicing a type of yoga that prepares him for death so that his consciousness will remain basically intact and then become reincarnated in someone else. That's the belief, right? So there's like a specific process for doing that in in Tibetan religion. So if all of that is possible, we're looking at the aliens who've been here for thousands and thousands of years. We've experienced them for thousands and thousands of years. The question is, are these the same aliens, right? Right. They just have never died, maybe because they're machines, or maybe because they have an alternate way of handling this consciousness uh, problem than, than we do. And again, we're back to consciousness, and we're back to trying to understand it, and using a multidisciplinary approach, and all those things we've been talking about. Yeah, God, I'm garrulous. No,
0: no, no. I actually love that. We could probably spend the whole, you know, the whole a whole show just on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you'd spend a lot of time in man discussing consciousness and. DNA consciousness and DNA in particular. And, you know, and you delve into the work of Crick uh, and, you know, the beginnings of uh, (laughs) DNA and the discovery of the chromosomes and things along those lines. Um, And, uh, and the human genetic code. And you also mentioned uh, the concept of, of something called directed panspermia. Can you explain what you mean by that or what Crick might've meant by that?
1: Yeah, it was Crick that came up. I mean, he didn't necessarily come up with it, but he he wrote a paper on it. He he mm-hmm. defended this idea. Um, Crick, of course, was one of the three you know discoverers of the double helix, the, the structure of the DNA uh, code, as we know. But that was like in 1960, right? So right. that wasn't that long ago. And um, the reason that I'm fascinated by DNA Crick's discovery in particular but also all this research has been done since then on yeah. DNA is that it it's 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 astonishing it's it doesn't make sense really in a way Four chemicals, four chemicals four letters of the alphabet create everything that lives on this planet. every living thing is composed of DNA and the DNA only has four freaking letters in that particular. So the, 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 the dictionary, the encyclopedia is vast with only four letters. I use 26 letters when I write my overly long books and I can't imagine, you know, doing it with only four letters, you know, which yeah. my readers would appreciate if I tried, but you have four letters and the combinations of them, the mathematical combinations of them create everything that, that exists. And yet even with those four letters, there are only four, 64 possible combinations of those four letters in groups of three. Now, you have to read the book to understand this and look at the charts and stuff. But there's only 64 possible um, nucleotides. So you have you know, a, a G and a T together, for instance, and then there's a sugar and a phosphate, and that's a nucleotide. And then you, you put three of them together, and that forms one of the codons of the genetic code. There are 64 possible combinations, 64 codons. 64 seemed like a weird number, right? We're all yeah. sort of base 10, you know, because we have 10 fingers and 10 toes and we think in terms of 10. Um, but not every culture did. Not every culture does. And 64 seemed like an odd number to 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 be the basis of all existence, living existence, organic life. And then I realized, of course, that the, the I Ching, the famous Chinese book of changes, uh, is created and developed exactly the same way. There are 64 possible combinations of solid and broken lines in groups of three. So you have 64, uh, 64 uh, hexagrams. So, and that series of 64 hexagrams basically discusses all the process that exists in the universe, right? According to the Chinese philosophy, whatever exists can be found on this chart. It's it's the process of changing from one state to another which is a very important concept. And Leibniz, the, the famous uh, mathematician of a couple of hundred years ago, then he devoted a lot of study to the I Ching, to those 64 hexagrams, because he felt that this was the beginning of the binary code, right, that we use today in computers. But it goes back further than that. I, I write about it in, in more depth in, in Secret Machines, uh, because it, it's not only the 64 that fascinates me, but it's the double helix of the DNA, Helixes, helices, exist in nature, right? We find them in a lot of different places. We'd never find a double helix. You know, one helix wrapped around another, That famous, right. that famous symbol. That does not exist in nature except in the DNA molecule. And yet, in esoteric traditions, again, starting in China hundreds of years ago, they depict the father and the mother of creation as two beings with tails that wrap around each other As as in a double helix. And since we didn't know about that until 1960, these people writing hundreds of years ago sort of identified that. And they were also the people who talked about 64 hexagrams. So you have the combination of the 64 hexagrams, the double helix creation, and the process of creation in a nice, nice neat package in China hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I mean, the I Ching goes back more than a thousand years. So we're talking about a kind of Unconscious realization. I mean, if we're if we have the genetic code in every cell of our body, it kind of would stand to reason that we kind of unconsciously think in those terms that we have that that image is there somewhere, right? Possibly. Of course, I'm being very speculative and very fanciful on this, but if every cell in our body has a double helix in it and it's a manifestation of those 64 uh, possible combinations, I mean, that's who we are. And the Chinese understood it somehow, and in other cultures in Africa, they understood it. They developed similar. Similar uh, ideas, similar pictures, serpents and the the hexagrams and the the whole thing, the idea of changes through a binary code system of process. All of this is is everywhere in the world. We've ignored it because it was superstition. It was divination. It was to tell the future. It was stuff that is not scientific. And then we go one step further. I just, one more thing, is these two mathematicians in Kazakhstan freaked me out when they published a paper a couple of years ago Um, and they said that there's something really weird about how the chromosomes are arranged because there are stop codes and start codes separating one group from another. If they didn't, we'd be horribly misshapen, right? We wouldn't be the way we are. We wouldn't have separate things for arms, legs, eyes, and all the rest of it. So they asked the question, how does it happen that between one code and another code, there's a specific code that says stop? now start again like a period at the end of a sentence so in genetics there is no run-on sentence there are periods that break up these sequences and they said mathematically that shouldn't be possible i mean zero was not even discovered until a few hundred years ago the roman numerals didn't have zero they used all the l's and m's and x's and i's there was no way to compute using zero. The Aztecs had zero, and in ancient India, they had zero. Eventually, they, they brought that to the West, and that became part of math. But there, there's no zero in nature, like there's no double helix in nature. To the, the two scientists, something had to have invented or programmed the, the genetic code to start and stop appropriately. It, they, they looked at it and they said, this is math. This is not, you know... This is not biology. This is not some normal process. What normal process has a zero built in or or a period? So take all of that, right? And Crick came up with this idea of directed panspermia. First, panspermia itself, as the name implies, means that somehow the DNA code was seeded all over the universe and only took in certain places. Directed panspermia, which is what Crick wrote about, says that someone or something deliberately seeded the planet with the genetic code, with RNA possibly before DNA, but deliberately did the seeding. It was directed, it was intentional, because there are certain chemicals that you need to create DNA for it to flourish, and they're in very short supply in the universe. They only exist in certain places. And in order to, for the DNA to flourish they had to pick a planet where there was some of that chemical present or else the whole thing would have fallen flat on its face. And that was Francis Crick's uh, idea of directed panspermia. To answer your question after like an hour. but
0: yeah. No, no, that's, that's well, wait me hear the next one, because I think, you, I think you drifted a little bit into uh, one of my favorite topics uh, that you bring up in man, uh, the idea of DNA consciousness. And uh, first of all, I mean, it's just a few questions here. What, first of all, what do you mean by that? And then can you also discuss consciousness and its possible relationship to the abduction phenomena? And while you're at it, can you mention the possible relationship between consciousness and quantum mechanics? And I'll give you three hours
1: <laughs> or three um, days. Yeah. Yeah. Three days might be, might be more like it. Um, DNA consciousness. Well, yeah, here we go back to the idea of emergent property of the brain Uh, What is consciousness? Does it emerge from the brain or or does the brain, you know, is it a function of consciousness? This goes back to something that I found fascinating. I wrote about this in Sinister Forces at at some length, um, and no one understood what the devil I was talking about, and I think they probably still don't. But there's two eminent scientists, Sir Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff. Penrose is a world-famous mathematician and scientist. Stuart Hameroff is an anesthesiologist, but he's more than that. He's a professor of anesthesiology, but basically he's an anesthesiologist. And these two guys got together because they were looking at each other's work, and they thought that maybe there was a crossover possibility there to come up with a new definition, a new explanation for the mechanics of consciousness. And it's really complicated. Okay, it's really complex. We won't go into all of it at the point now. But it does involve something called microtubules in the brain. These are very tiny, tiny, tiny structures in the brain. They're like 25, I think, nanometers. So that's really embarrassingly small. But it was the smallness of them and the fact that they seem to be transmitting information across synapses or across spaces in between them that gave rise to Hammeroff and Penrose thinking Where does this stuff go and where is it coming from? Is there a quantum effect taking place in the human brain? Is that possible? Is the brain a kind of quantum computer? And of course, that was dismissed almost immediately by scientists. They say, "Okay, you're talking about reactions at the Planck scale, right? We're talking about extremely tiny place. These kinds of quantum reactions require these very small, you know, not not only the small space, but it requires temperatures approaching absolute zero. To get what you're trying to achieve in the human brain, it's not possible. It's too warm, it's too wet, it's too everything. You guys are dreaming. Forget about it. They insisted, though, um, that they had you know, evidence to show that this this effect was taking place, that there was a quantum computer somehow operating in the brain. And they acknowledged the fact of the, you know, the temperatures, the Planck constant, all this other stuff. A couple of years ago, just before I started working on on secret machines, a paper came out which kind of vindicated uh, Penrose and Hameroff, and it said, well, wait a minute, photosynthesis occurs at the quantum level. They're taking light, plants are taking light and transmitting and transforming light into nutrients for the plants to grow. That's a quantum effect, and it's happening in ambient temperature, not in absolute zero, Not at the scales you're talking about, but in ambient temperature, light molecules, light photons are being transmitted, (laughs) transubstantiated, to use a capital expression, Um, and they're they're becoming, you know, edible light, right? So Stuart and Hanroff, suddenly they're saying, well, yeah, that's what we've been saying all along, right? These things can happen in ambient temperature. They can happen on the scales that we're talking about. And, you know, why isn't it? Why isn't it possible? So... There is a relationship then between consciousness and quantum mechanics, at least in the brain, at least according to Penrose and Hameroff. Now, you're asking, you know, why an anesthesiologist would be involved in this. Have you ever had a colonoscopy? Yes,
0: absolutely. Every 10 years. I've got one coming up in about six months.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You have my condolences.
0: Thank you. Yes.
1: You know what happens, right? They give you a drug. Quite often it's sodium pentothal. Be careful, Jim. And they give you a sodium pentothal drug, and then you're out. But you're not really out because you're obeying instructions. Turn over, roll over, do this, do that. But you have no consciousness of it. And you wake up after it with no memory of what happened, right? Hameroff saw that, you know, millions of times, right, in hospital settings. And he's fascinated by this idea, as I am. Like, what happens to that experience? Where does it go, right? Right. You have no conscious experience. You have no memory of it. It's there, and now it's gone. But it's got to be in there somewhere. Something happened to the brain. And so Hameroff, in his discussions with Penrose, who's like a mathematician and scientist, is saying, yeah, you got a point there. And they start working on this together to develop this idea that there's oh, something they called uh, orchestrated objective reduction. We won't go into it OR, but you'll read it in the book. And they're coming up with this, this model for how consciousness might be related to DNA, that the DNA itself is doing this conscious, is creating consciousness in a sense, or creating the, the receiver for consciousness by developing the nanotubules in the brain to perform these quantum functions. Like it's all an inter- interrelated model and off and Penrose. And I'm really obliterating their theory by truncating it so much. But please read the book or read you know Penrose's book on, on the subject. Um, oh God, what's the name of it? Okay, you'll see it's in the it's in the uh it's in the book, it's it's cited. So Penrose writes about it and uh if you've ever seen that film called what the bleep do we know? Uh you'll have Hameroff and Penrose talking or at least ha- I think Hammeroff anyway is talking about it in in that video as well. So it's worth it just for that if nothing else.
0: Yeah. My wife's uh doctoral advisor was in that film um, uh Candace Pert oh, okay. uh, who wrote The Molecules of Emotion. Uh yeah. Now uh, there was another uh, uh, f- f- a theory you mentioned regarding um, consciousness and 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 it's popular in some circles. It's called panpsychism, which claims that consciousness permeates the universe and that all things are conscious to some degree. Uh, uh, first of all, can you explain panpsychism panpsych- a little bit? And does that uh, mean that a tree? has consciousness or a rock has consciousness or is it just a, what we would call animate objects i mean if everything is made out of patterns of energy i guess everything in the universe should be right have a consciousness to it
1: right we we this is again we're jumping the gun because we don't know what consciousness is yet so is a rock conscious a lot of people will say well no it obviously isn't conscious well how do you know what can you define consciousness for me your time, right? So, we, we don't know, right? We don't know what consciousness is, so we're kind of operating backwards to front here. But that's okay because that's how we're going to have to f- discover this for ourselves in some way. right? We've got to do it somehow. Um, panpsychism, pan meaning everywhere or everything, and psychism meaning psyche, a spirit, a consciousness. Everything has consciousness. Yes, that's what panpsychism is. And it was kind of popular really in the 19th century, also in the 20th century for a bit. We had uh, philosophers writing about the possibility of panpsychism. Uh, it's come back into vogue a little bit. If you read uh, Quanta magazine or you read some of the articles on Medium and stuff by scientists and you know, or by people observing science, they're starting to talk about how this idea of panpsychism is coming back into the fore, that maybe there is a way to look at everything being conscious. Uh, we kind of know now that plants seem to have consciousness. And I don't mean in the 1960s, you know, everything's alive, man, you know, uh, especially reefer. <laughs> talking about, you know, real, you know, like a tree in, in a forest is somehow communicating with another tree somewhere else. And they've been doing experiments to show that trees warn each other about an invasive species, or they try to protect each other from the invasive species. And there's like yeah. a, this this weird relationship that trees have with with each other in forests. And that plants have, you know, and this is to all those vegetarians out there, you're still eating conscious beings, okay? Just letting them, yeah. you know, okay? Eat rocks, you know, because you don't know if they're conscious or not. They're the safest thing to eat right now. So, do plants scream? Are they in pain? And, you know, they've, they've stuck, uh, you know, um, um, what do you call them? polygraph polygraphs galvanic skin yeah yeah detectors to to register emotional responses in plants you know that goes back again to the 60s and 70s but it's still a viable way of looking at things we're talking about the possibility that everything is has consciousness and if everything does even our silly you know robotic aliens may have consciousness they may be composed of elements that are conscious And their consciousness may be the result of their structure, what what they're made of and how they are made, how they are put together, if indeed they are machines. We're trying to create conscious machines right now. Our artificial intelligence programs, which scare the hell out of me because we don't know what the hell we're doing with it, and we don't know what the implications are, you know, all... Credit to Ray Kurzweil. I see you have your book on his shelf, as I do on mine. Oh, you can actually see it. Oh, okay. Oh, I see all your. I have all of those books, by the way. You have all this? Yeah, I'm sure. I've got them all. I um, and I was surprised to see Every, everybody that I talk to these days has Kurzweil on their shelf. That big black book, you know? Yeah, the singularity, the singularity yes. is near. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
1: But yeah, this that that is a problem for us because we don't know how to handle it yet. We don't know what consciousness is, but we're trying to give consciousness to a machine. Good luck with that. Right, We don't know what the implications are. We don't know how consciousness evolves, develops, or fine-tunes itself. And then would a machine act based on its consciousness and not on commands from a human uh, controller? All of these things we have to address some way. And we're also putting our cultural biases, we're programming them into the artificial intelligence uh, algorithms, which is another funny thing. And it's been written about in different places. It's not broadly understood, but we are trying to. We are making assumptions about reality, and we're programming them into artificial intelligence machines, which could also be a big mistake. But this gets back to your question. Panpsychism says that there's consciousness in everything. Um, I agree, in in a in a guarded sense, saying that we really don't know what consciousness is yet. But theoretically, why wouldn't a rock be consciousness? Tell me what the theory is. Is it because there's no DNA in the rock? Okay. Now we're talking about DNA consciousness. Plants would have consciousness. They have DNA. Birds, animals, everything has consciousness. It all has DNA. A rock doesn't have DNA. So, okay, it doesn't have consciousness. If that's the rule we're making, then I will say, I will agree with you. The rock has no consciousness. But you have to, we have to prove that. We have to prove right. that DNA is the arbiter of what is or is not conscious. And that's where we're at right now.
0: Okay. We're running out of time a little bit, and I have about four or five more questions. But let me just um, let me just sort of ask you a final question here, and then we'll uh, and then we'll wrap this one up, and then we'll talk to AC uh, and Tom and figure out if we can do. I know we're going to be doing the third one, uh, and uh, but we might want to do even three and a half or four down the road. But uh, it, towards the end of the book, um, you uh, I'm going to read it, read a quote. Uh, your, quoting you here, which I found fascinating, and I I just wanted you to comment on this. Uh, You said, (laughs) for the most part, uh, the phenomenon is a random series of appearances, visitations, even abductions. It happens to us, we don't happen to it. There is probably no other human experience that comes close to making us such passive observers slash victims, except for some natural disasters. One thinks of an earthquake, or a volcanic eruption, or a tornado, or rape. You want to sort of comment on that a little bit? Um, that's pretty provocative, and I, I think it's sort of profound, and at the same time,
1: in your presentation especially, I was getting a little nervous. The, uh,
0: yeah, well, yeah, well, you know, it's it's it, it's it's funny. It's I mean, it, it's, it's what it does. Yeah, <laughs> what it does is 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 it it it, it does make us into victims. Uh, you know, w- regarding my own experiences, and you know, w- you mentioned Whitley earlier too. I mean, things happen. Uh, you know, to people, things happen to people all the time. People aren't necessarily going. I mean, the mystics will go about searching for this sometimes, and 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 uh, remote viewers and what have you. But for the most part, most people aren't. Then all of a sudden, out of a clear blue sky, boom. And uh, I don't know where to place all. I don't know how to, how to fit that in.
1: Well, this kind of goes back to everything we've discussed so far, but it also, also pre, prefigures our next discussion uh, on Secret Machines War. Um, it happens to us, is true. The UFO experience, it happens to us. It's not something that we control no government on earth can command the ufo phenomenon to behave to do something to show up here go there do this or do that they can try to communicate with it i believe the soviets in the days of the old soviet union there was a special case out there at a nuclear missile silo where they claimed that they could kind of communicate to the ufo in a way using hand gestures and it would do things like like in close encounters of the third kind right you know the you know all of that stuff right the um the five tones, the dee, 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 dee. So oh, yeah. you would use gestures and they would repeat the gestures and that, that kind of, of thing. But for the most part, um, I think that it happens to us. We are in the, in the position of being victims, basically, if you want to look at it in a negative way. We're victimized by the phenomenon. Why is that? Um, we're happy with consensus reality. You know, we're happy with the way reality, the way we think reality is. We don't want to rock the boat. We can fantasize about things. We can dream. We can pray to deities. But it's all within a social context, and it's all within a cultural context that's under our control. But what the UFO does is it shows up. It just shows up, and it threatens that consensus reality. So we're kind of in the position of a victim anyway, no matter how we look at it, because we can't control this thing. We have to learn to live with it, you know, smile and, you know, uh, try to to try to endure what's being done to you, you know, by this outside force because you have no other way to defend yourself or no way that we know of. So, yeah, all of these things that happen, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. Specifically rape, because a lot of alien, alien abductees report that that's happening, report that that's, you know, it's a physical violation, whether or not it's rape or not, but it's still a physical violation. And it's a physical violation of men, of women. It doesn't matter. It, it's it's a violation. And thus not even get started on animal mutilations, right? If they're involved in what that right. possibility might be. So we are in the position of being victims of this uh, in our way of thinking. Maybe in its way of thinking, we're not. Maybe they're they're being helpful. Maybe they think they're being helpful. Or they think they're being generous in some way. I don't know, but I think that we are in that position of being the recipients and the the. We're not actors in this. We are being acted upon, and that's what bothers all of us. I think who study this phenomenon, and John Keel has talked about it, and Jacques Vallee has talked about it. Is it a control mechanism? Are we being controlled by this thing? Is these are these little moments of control? And are these only the moments that we remember of that control? All
0: right. Excellent Mm -hmm. answer. Thank you so much. Well, um, we're going to have to wrap this up, this session of TTS Talks. Um, We'll be back with episode 11 of TTS Talks with uh, Peter Lavenda very soon. Peter, once again, thanks for spending time with us today, and we'll be chatting with you again soon. Uh, As a reminder, all of the Secret Machines books are available at uh, tothestars.media. You can stay up to date with TTS by finding us on social media Instagram at to the stars dot media, Twitter at to the starsmedia.and, and, and now just to the stars media, and Facebook at to the stars, Inc. Uh, Peter, where can listeners find you once again?
1: Uh, I'm on social media for my sins um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can probably find me there. I'll have my own website up and running one of these days. Uh, and, of course, the books are available wherever you buy books.
0: And thanks again uh, for tuning in to TTS Stocks, everybody. Uh, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us over Apple Podcasts, and we will catch you next time for part three of this three-part series discussing secret machines, gods, man, and war. And maybe, and uh, AC, uh, maybe uh, AC sort of the general factotum here. She runs everything. Uh, Maybe we can get even Tom uh, on a separate uh, TTS podcast with Peter and myself and chatting about this and about all the trilogy in general, some of the projects we have and we're working on uh, currently. Peter, once again, thank you. You're just absolutely amazing, man. And um, oh, yeah. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again very, very soon.